0: Welcome to Bench Boost presented by IV Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At IV, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by our Technical Product Manager, Dr. Leslie Owens our Stability Assessment Lab Assistant, Madeline Hughes, and our Chief Technical Officer, Dr. Brian Alexander. Today, we're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 15 on Significant Figures and Uncertainty. If you would like to follow along with us, then you can view the ICP Operations Guide on our website at www.interganicventures.com. All right. So let's start off by talking about significant figures. This is actually something I just had a tech support case that was resolved, you know, where a customer was asking, you know, how many significant figures are, are on your C of A? There were some questions going back and forth because we had really, really good values and all of our numbers ended in a zero, you know. Um, so I'll throw this out to the group. Brian, how do we do significant figures around IV?
1: Well, if you're talking about stock product, then the number of significant, significant figures that we report on this C of A is really a function of the concentration. So if you're talking about our uh, 10 ppm product line, then we're going to give you essentially four significant figures or up to four. Hundred ppm product line is going to be right at that number as well. And then, as you go to higher concentrations, essentially, um, it's going to be in that, say, three to four significant figure range. I think that we had a brief conversation before we started the podcast about that tech support case, Mike. And I think that one of the things that came out of that conversation was that those nice round numbers that were on that particular certificate of analysis were calculated values based upon the manufacturing process that we followed. So it wasn't a measurement result so much as a calculation derived from a measurement result. And if you're really careful with how you follow the process and weigh out everything appropriately, you can get those nice round zeros at the end of the concentration values.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly what that case is about. It's just, it looked too good. And you know how can you do that when you're running something through an ICP? That just doesn't turn out where everything looks at a nice round number. So yeah, I think that was that was an interesting case. And one, we don't get a lot of technical support questions about significant figures, but we are always more than welcome to answer any questions that anyone would have. Maddie, I'll throw this out to you. I know, you know, you are, you're still in college. You're taking courses as you're, as you're working here. Is this something I remember when I was in college, this is something my professors would always get honest about it would be, ah, oh, you've reported one too many significant figures in your lab notebook. Is that still the case?
2: Oh, yeah, <laughs> there definitely. Um, especially in the exams, there are certain professors who will mark you off points if you don't report the amount of significant figures that they ask you to. Like, there was one time I had to do, it was something in a reactor analysis class, but he asked us to report, I think, in three sig figs, and I did four, and I got marked half off because of sig figs. So, sig figs are definitely still a very big thing in college, and I personally think they harp on it a lot more than they should. (laughs) especially if you get points off on the
3: exams.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, this, this is something that I think is, is really good because I know when we have questions, um, or not questions, but rather while we're doing projects um, that we really want to certify something at a good concentration, this is when we rely a lot on our processes to make sure we're taking really accurate weights and using as good a balance as we can, you know, up to three or four places because you really need to have as many significant figures at each measurement to wind up with a result that has a good number of significant figures. Leslie, could you run us through just a quick, you know, what are the rules when someone's doing a bunch of calculations, but they need to end up with the right amount of sig figs at the end?
3: Right. You know, your example with the balance and making sure you get a good number of sig figs is very important. It depends on the math that you're doing. So if you're multiplying or dividing, which most concentration measurements are going to be multiplication and division, the fewest number of sig figs is going to be or in your measurement. fewest number of sig figs in your measurement is going to be your rule to go by. So if you're only measuring on a one place, one decimal place balance, then at most, you know, you've got that one decimal place to work with. So you want to make sure that you're getting a good number of sig figs, as Mike said, if you're adding or subtracting, It's the fewest number of decimal places that come into the rule for the number of sig figs. It's really helpful to write these in scientific notation, too, if you're ever in question on the number of sig figs. So maybe, Madeline, on your exam, you could have gone back to the basics, (laughs) written it in scientific notation, and seen number of sig figs there. Zeros tend to cause problems. So zeros on the left of a decimal are considered non-significant, unless they're between two significant figures. Decimals on the right tend to be significant. Again, writing that in scientific notation, you'll figure out whether it is or not. But that's the rules. There are a lot of exceptions, of course, with sig figs, and that's why I think everybody hates them. It's because there's rules but there are exceptions to the mm. rules. So it makes it hard to figure out exactly what you need to do and what's good and what's bad.
0: Yeah. And you lose points
1: on your exam if you get it
0: wrong. Great.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's tough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's enough about sig figs. And let's talk about uncertainty. So this is something with as much as we talk about uncertainty within these four walls and outside of these four walls, like conferences and whoever will ask us about uncertainty. I feel like we'll talk to them for hours about it. I was very surprised when I got to this, you know, chapter of the book, and Paul had written, you know, a little bit about it, but he said basically, hey, you want to learn this, you go to this um, EuroChem resource, and they're going to show you everything you need to know. So I think this would be a good place where for folks that don't want to go through the whole EuroChem document, I've, if you have time, definitely go through it. The link still works; everything is working there. But let's just kick off with some uncertainty. You know, what is uncertainty? I'll throw it out to the group. What do you all want to talk about with uncertainty first? Well, I, I guess that when I
1: kind of stepped into it with both feet, when I joined IV, the standard deviation concept is is relatively straightforward. But in our line of business, what I quickly learned was that uncertainty is such a uh, larger, much more broad umbrella term. It starts bringing in a lot of stuff that's not just related to The mathematical expression of standard deviation of a measurement. And one of the things that was great was learning from Paul about different types of uncertainty. And uh, there are two big examples the type A versus type B uncertainty. And, you know, when I think back to the conversations we had, he would say, well, type A uncertainty is something that you can extract from the process of your measurement. And type B uncertainty is something that you're pulling out of your back pocket because of your experience as a chemist. And both can be appropriate and both can be very useful when assigning a total uncertainty. But that was something that was eye-opening for me when I first came to IV.
3: Yeah, I like that explanation. I think of type B uncertainty as based on your technical expertise and your chemical knowledge. So that fits well with Paul's description.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we would have great conversations about what the value should be. And he would say, well, I've done this for years in this, say, titration method or something. And I can tell you that that is not the appropriate way, or that answer is not what we could expect just based upon that vast experience. But to your point, Leslie, it really was something that you had to learn over time.
3: Yeah, and it's similar, you know, doing the same type of sample over and over again. It's doing the same type of matrix over and over again. So as long as you have a lot of consistency in that historical data, I think it's a very good place to go if you can't really explain with the actual data set what's going on. Overestimation, is always a safe practice here. You know, whatever you decide to use, type A or type B, you want to make sure that it's appropriate and it's not too small for your application.
0: All right, be
1: conservative. That's a great point. Absolutely.
3: Yeah.
0: I will say there. there's a, a really good presentation. I think, Leslie, you had started it. I took it and I sort of morphed it, you know, around a, a few different things. But at the end, I always harp on, if you're trying to lower your uncertainty, focus on three things. Don't take a low volume or a low weight because that's going to give you horrible numbers. Try to get your instrument RSDs under control and always look at your what you're using as your standard of comparison. So I think, you know, throwing that out, I think people don't realize that whatever they're using as their standard is their baseline. Um, so we use NIST and a lot of our customers will, you know, they should use us if they're our customers. But I just throw that out. I think that's something, you know, people don't really think about that. It all comes back to, you know, the lowest you can be is whatever your standard is.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Mike, and it touches a little bit upon some topics and we're talking about today in some of the previous podcasts, which is uh, your final answer is only as good as your least precise measurement or approach. And so don't try to game the system by providing something that is unreasonable simply because somewhere in that process, it's kind of the lowest common denominator is what's driving that
0: value. Definitely. And I'll speak, you know, for inorganic Ventures, just a little bit, you know, under the hood of our products. Our final uncertainty that goes on the CERT is not just the uncertainty of the testing of the measurements that took place. There's actually four pieces that went into that. So there's the uncertainty of, we call it the characterization testing that took place. But there's also the uncertainty related to the homogeneity of the bottling process. And I'll throw that out. You know, Leslie or Brian, do you want to speak about that? The only thing,
1: I mean, I'm a couple of years, well, several years removed from really being involved with that. And it is absolutely important that we conduct these other assessments beyond that assessment of characterization, whether it's homogeneity or shipping or something like that, because ultimately you want the end user to have the greatest confidence in the uh, product. What I will just say is that overall, we've done this so long and we've gotten pretty good at it, that a lot of those um, other assessments that you mentioned, Mike, are essentially negligible. Mm -hmm. And for all intents and purposes, a lot of the statistical analysis shows that you can make those terms almost zero, but we still have to think about them. We still have to account for them, and we still have to make sure that we're being appropriate when we assign that final certified value.
3: Definitely. Right. The idea of overestimation comes in there. We have a lot of data that suggests that we could call them zero, but we're going to take the approach of calling it greater than zero just to be safe. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And alongside that uncertainty due to testing characterization and, you know, homogeneity of the bottling process, Maddie, this is actually your area of expertise, you know, with this whole stability side. There are two other terms. It's, we call it transport stability and long-term stability, You know, where our products have to be tested over and over again, you know, same lot, but just different conditions. So I'll let you speak about that. It's very rare that someone gets to talk about our stability program. So I'll let you let you go.
2: Yeah. So for I mainly do long term stability. So in a given month, I'm given a certain amount of blends that I need to test. And basically what I do is I test them and see where their concentrations are at. And then based on the trends of the data, I report back and say whether or not the blend is stable or not. There have been several occasions where actually just today I was testing carbon in nitric acid and I've been testing it for over three months now. I think the first test was in September, but um, I've been testing over and over again to ensure that it's actually not passing and that it is degrading over time. And so I basically will look at the trends and basically report back and say whether or not things are actually staying stable or not. Yeah.
0: And I think that's something that's, that's really cool. I know, Leslie, you're on the quoting side of our, especially our customs. And I think this is something um, that a lot of our customers don't know that if, you know, we quote everything as it is stable if, if we're quoting it, but if there's any sort of inkling we have that something might not be stable, you guys mark it and Maddie you end up testing it, right?
3: Yeah, that's the way it works. We operate on a stable by design principle. So we have 35 plus years of experience. We know what should work and we know <laughs> what hasn't worked in the past. And as long as we're following those rules, we feel really comfortable assigning our five-year lot expiration date to these products. But, you know, as Mike mentioned, if, there's something that the customer wants to push the limits on or we want to learn more and possibly push the limits on, we'll go ahead and produce that solution and we'll market. And Maddie gets to do all the work to make sure that our assumptions are good and we can expand the offerings to our customers. So, you know, stability is a positive thing in our world as well. You know, it indicates when something goes wrong, but it also tells us when things go right too. So stability is really important
0: definitely. Well, we hope you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivyignite at Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover chapter 16, the final chapter of the ICP operations guide, where our team will be discussing traceability. We'll hope you have joined us then and I hope you have a fantastic week. Thank you.